Hello, and welcome to Writing the Coast. I'm your host, Megan Cole, and Writing the Coast is the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. On Writing the Coast, you'll hear conversations with the winners and finalists of the annual BC and Yukon Book Prizes, as well as interviews with book lovers from across the province and territory. My guest for this episode is Rachel Hartman. Rachel is the author of In the Serpent's Wake, which won the 2023 Sheila A. Egoff Children's Literature Prize. On this episode, Rachel talks about how she began creating the world of In the Serpent's Wake when she was a kid, and why she's fallen in love with writing from multiple points of view. Rachel starts our conversation with a reading from In the Serpent's Wake. So uh, one of the things this book is about is is stories. And so there are several instances of people telling stories and having them be received in, in different ways. So this is a story that Tess tells before a large group of people, uh, assuming that they will, as she has, identify with the hero of the story, but they don't. So <laughs> here's the story. Once upon a time, Dozarius, the pirate, defeated the dread giant Portobaldus and took the luxuries of his house, bolts of silk, gold, and furs and nutmegs. He particularly wanted the giant's magical heat-proof gloves, which Portobaldus had used to dig into a volcano and grab out molten rock to throw. Of course, the gloves were far too big, so Dozarius had his tailor refashion them into a fine suit of clothes. In a dusty corner of the giant's house, Dozarius found a treasure map which showed where Portobaldus had buried the magic rubies of King Argopopus. They were quite nearby, along the seashore, and Dozarius thought he and his valorous crew could certainly spare some time to retrieve them. Upon sailing to the place indicated by the map, a stretch of white sandy beach, they were dismayed to see an enormous sandcastle standing where the treasure was supposedly buried. Ordinarily, this would have been no obstacle. They were pirates, after all. They'd kicked over sandcastles before. But this particular castle was swarming with very large crabs. Dozerius sent forth his seven most fearsome fighters to deal with the crabs. They approached the sandcastle and cried, We have come for the rubies of King Argopopus. Hand them over, and no one gets hurt. The crabs scoffed at this, and so the seven pirates attacked the castle. Three were killed, and the rest were beaten and injured. These were exceptionally ferocious crabs. Their carapaces were as wide as dinner plates and hard as steel. Their claws were strong enough to snap a grown man's wrist or put a crimp in his sword. Well, this is humiliating, said Dozerius's first mate. We're not going to be driven off by mere crustaceans, I hope. Of course not, said Dozerius. They're tough, I'll grant. But the tougher the foe, the softer his underbelly. Follow my lead. I'll show you how to defeat them. This time, Dozerius himself went ashore with Marsupius and some other men. He did not approach the crab's stronghold, but began setting up camp a ways down the beach. He had his men bring all the softest cushions and most luxuriant furnishings from the ship, as if this were the campsite of a king. The crabs watched suspiciously, then sent an emissary to parley. "'What are you doing to our beach?' said the crabs, crabbily examining Dozerius's wafting silk tents, gilt tables, and the copper cauldron upon the fire. "'We greatly admire your fine city,' said Dozerius, "'but noticed you lack a few of the refinements of civilization. "'We thought we'd found a city of our own over here "'so we could trade our luxury goods "'and teach you how to be gentlemen.' 
The crabs thought this was a splendid idea, so Dozerius traded them seven bolts of silk for a pile of seashells and a sack of sand fleas. His crewmen thought he'd gone mad, but whenever they tried to ask Dozerius what he was doing, he said, patience, all will become clear. The crabs tried making themselves silk robes, but they fit very awkwardly. Well, of course they do, said Dozerius when the crabs complained. Nobody wears silk robes over armor. In fact, nobody wears armor at all in a civilized city. It gives the wrong impression, as if you were frightened and insecure, not the lords of your own destiny. The crabs removed their heavy carapaces, stacking them behind their sandcastle, and found that the silk robes now draped properly and looked much better. However, there was still the problem of the silk getting caught on their claws. It snagged and tore most grievously. Well, of course it does, said Dozerius when they complained. You don't see my companions and me trying to get dressed with weapons in our hands, do you? Refined people know when to set their weapons aside. In a safe, civilized society, you don't need to go around armed all the time. The crabs could not set their claws aside, alas, but Dozerius suggested binding them shut with colorful silk thread. It was practical and fashionable. The crabs loved it and stood in line for their claws to be bound. You've improved yourselves, said Dozerius warmly. I would like to have a great feast in your honor. But first, I must purify myself before the gods. He stoked the fire under his great copper cauldron until the water was swiftly boiling, and he leaped in with his clothes on. That is to say, wearing the suit made from the giant's heat-proof glove. The crabs gasped at the steam rising up. Can you not bathe in the ocean? they asked. Dozeris feigned surprise. You're worried for my safety. How kind. But our gods are very powerful and would never allow their devoted servants to come to harm. How do they know you're devoted? said the king of the crabs, greedily already thinking what he could do with that kind of divine protection. We prove it by bathing in a boiling cauldron and demonstrating absolute trust, said Dozerius. You're welcome to perform these same ablutions with all your people, but first let me come out and dry myself. Dozerius climbed out and fresh water was put into the pot. All the crabs eagerly climbed in. At first they were quite content, for the water was only pleasantly warm. It's boiling ferociously, said Dozerius. Do you not feel it? The crabs could not feel it, for of course it wasn't true. Dozerius stoked the fire higher. Some of the crabs began to feel it, but none of them dared admit that the gods had not granted their protection. The water grew hotter, and still the crabs stoically pretended it wasn't hurting them. Only when bubbles began to rise in earnest from the bottom of the pot did they understand that they had been deceived. Panicked, they squirmed and writhed and screamed for mercy, but their claws had been bound so they couldn't pull themselves out, and their carapaces had been removed so they couldn't bear the weight of other crabs upon their backs. Dozerius enjoyed his promised feast, a great pot of boiled crabs. His crew, finally understanding his purpose, shared it with him. When they knocked down the sandcastle and dug into the strand, however, the magic rubies were nowhere to be found. And thus Dozerius never considered this exploit a real victory, for he had traded the lives of three men and seven bolts of silk for nothing but a crab dinner and a day at the beach. It was fun to write a story like that. <laughs> Reminiscent of lots of fairy tales I read as a kid. Yeah, for um, sure. Yeah. <laughs> My first question for you is, who are you? Oh, golly. <laughs> well, <laughs> these days I, I feel like the answer is an old lady. But uh, I'm um, a mother and a writer and a, gosh, a dog owner. and a, I was born in the U.S., but I've lived in Canada for 20 years. And so I, I definitely feel more Canadian than American now. 
And um, I don't know. I'd like to say I'm a a, a friend and a, a someone who loves to laugh. <laughs> so for folks who are new to your books, uh, In the Serpent's Wake is part of a trilogy, or not a trilogy, a series. Mm-hmm. Um, so can you give like a brief introduction to the world and the characters for those who aren't aren't familiar with this world? Sure, sure, absolutely. Um, it's actually my, my fourth book in Serpent's Wake, and it's the second half of a duology, which is why I was very surprised that it's, uh, you know, won the, this BC Book Award because it, you know, the second book and it's also fantasy. And, and so, um, but I think it's, I think any of the books, you can kind of start with any of the books because I, I like to think they stand alone a bit. Um, but my first book, Serafina, um, was about a girl who was half human and half dragon. It's a world where dragons can take human form and um, but they're not supposed to intermarry or interbreed or anything. And so she's she's not supposed to exist. It's not supposed to be possible. Uh, so she has to hide what she is because people would be frightened otherwise. And so she's trying to go through life a little bit anonymously. And yet she wants to be a musician and that brings her in the public eye. And then a prince of the realm is killed and she being having a foot in both worlds has a has a insight into solving this murder and so it turns into kind of the first book is kind of a murder mystery actually uh where she helps solve this mystery but can she you know avoid revealing the mystery of who she is and it turns out she can't oh no but uh that's all for the best uh then in the second book (laughs) having having sort of solved her inner problem she has to go out into the world and and face the world in a different way now uh, that people know what she is, and now there's a war brewing between the dragons and the humans, and and can she can she in fact play a part in staving off this bigger conflict? Um, so then the the second duology set in the same world uh, stars Tess, who is Seraphina's fully human half sister, so a younger sister by her father's second wife, and um, it's interesting because to me. Uh, one of the most fun parts was Tess has a different view of Serafina. We've just seen Serafina. We've seen Serafina's internal struggles. We've seen her doubts, the things she's gone through. But to Tess, it looks like Serafina had it easy. Serafina was so cool and so good at everything. And by the time she was my age, she had saved the world. <laughs> and I'm just a loser. And so that's kind of where where we start with Tess. The Tess has had some unfortunate... Um, situations and circumstances and has, has feels like she's ruined her own life and that it's all over for her and she's she's helping her twin you know get married and then she herself is going to have to go to a convent and she decides no you know what I I don't have to go to a con I, I will just walk walk away I'll just walk, I'll get out of here and um so off she goes and uh crosses the country and and really takes a journey into herself and figuring out kind of finding herself again and how do you how do you become the protagonist of your own story when you feel like you have not been that and uh so that that first book Tess of the Road is her discovering that so then (laughs) in these duologies I seem to have a pattern here where the first the first book is an inward journey the second book is an outward journey and so in The Serpent's Wake Tess having figured out how to become the protagonist of her own story has to go out into the world and figure out when do I, in fact, need to be the sidekick, you know? 
like because her first impulse as i think a lot of protagonist's stories impulse is to go out and you know, save people and rescue to come to the rescue and and realizing people that's not what they need that's not what they want that's their everybody we're all needing to be protagonists so how do we support other people in their growing into that and so uh she travels out into the world and then comes to understand it and comes to understand one of the things i had to come to terms with in this book was all the other books had had a single narrator single focus and for in the serpent's wake I was, you know the story is too too big we can't just live in tess's head the whole time and so it's the first book where i start branching out into other other people for a while uh other perspectives for a while and that that was really great i loved that a lot and so uh <laughs> i'm <laughs> becoming a fan of the the omniscient uh viewpoint which i never thought i would have been yeah but, yeah <laughs> So yeah, that's that's the series so far. Yeah, I'm actually working on a fifth book, like literally right now. I just got notes from my editor yesterday. Yes, and so this this book though, it's set in the same world, but it's not directly connected to any of these other stories. It's a whole different set of characters, and it's like a hundred years earlier, and in a different part of the country, and different things are happening, but still the same the same world where dragons take human form, and and you know the same kinds of of social challenges, and so yeah. Yeah. I'm always so, uh, I write creative nonfiction, which maybe means I have no imagination. <laughs> um, and so I'm, I'm always like marveled by, by like the, uh, um, way that people like you can just create <laughs> worlds like this. Um, did you grow up reading fantasy or like, how did you become interested in writing YA fantasy? Um, I did grow up reading fantasy. It was always my favorite favorite thing um i'm trying to think when i was very little um the earliest i can remember probably well no no the chronicles of narnia Nar that was the first i was reading those or having them read to me or some combination of the two in like second third grade and then which is too young like the books those books actually there's a lot in them that is like you're not understanding when you're in second but you know the part you do understand you're like yay walk into a, yeah. a new world it's <laughs> Um, but, um, Tolkien, those were all given to me. I think I was 11. Um, before that, though, Lloyd Alexander, um, uh, was another big one who was very important to me. Susan Cooper, um, Oversea Understone, those books were also really, uh, really great. And the thing is, it didn't, I loved the books and I would pretend like I would, I would play with my sister. I have two younger sisters and be like, now we're going to, and we'd do the whole plot of the book and I would lead them through and we'd do it in the backyard and I'd, I'd tell them the story and we'd go around and, and now we're going to fight these guys. And now we're going to do this. <laughs> um, so I was always just very wrapped up in it, but it didn't occur to me that there was a human behind the book doing, making this up, doing this um, until I was in sixth grade. I have to mention my sixth grade teacher, Mrs. Chamberlain, who focused on creative writing in class. And um, this is the first time that I recall that, that we really were writing stories in, in class. And so I, every one of those assignments, like she would say, oh, you know, write two pages of the, and I would write 10 pages, you know, I, I just, I would just keep going and going, like always overachieving on those assignments. You know, I couldn't find time to finish my math homework, but I could do like extra on the writing. So, um, but once, at the, I don't even remember, I think it was a poem. And I go right at the bottom of the poem, she wrote, Rachel, you're a real writer. And I, I knew she would not lie to me. She was my favorite. 
And so I said, okay, okay, I am. That's, that's, <laughs> um, so the, this world, this world that is in these books, in fact, I started making it up when I was in seventh grade. Oh, wow. Yeah. That was a different teacher assigned us to write, um, a narrative poem. And I went home and I wrote this, like, it just came out. I know since you write, you know how this is. You never, hardly ever have a thing where you just sit down and it all comes out at once. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, but it was this poem. It was very silly. It was about a little girl who was a knight and her name was Sir Amy. And she lived in a country called Gered, which rhymed with Fred, which was the name of her horse. And later on in the poem, there was a dragon that played the cello that rhymed with jello. It was like seventh grade, super rhyming. Yeah. <laughs> very silly poem, but suddenly I had a place, right? I was like, oh, oh, this is like Narnia or like Middle Earth. This is my place where stuff can happen. And so all through high school, whenever I would need to set a story somewhere, this is where I would set it. I took a, a class on mythology where we had to make up myths for some made up country. And I was like, well, obviously these are the myths of Gored and we'll just, you know. Um, and so then... <laughs> I did go to university where I I was I, I made a serious attempt to be serious for a while and I studied like literature <laughs> <laughs> and I studied Greek and Spanish and I wrote you know my senior thesis on Don Quixote and the satires of Lucian and I was like and I'm focusing here but it didn't it didn't stick and um, after university I decided I would try doing um, comics because I really enjoyed drawing and so I started drawing uh comics that were set then in Gored. um the 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 sir amy the knight became just a little girl named amy who was imagined being a knight and i did a comic book called amy unbounded um during my 20s basically and so it was fun it was that's a really hard way to make a living in those days it was comics um it's, it's a little better now there's more options um and more of them being published but in those days, it was, we were folding them, like photocopying them, stapling them, taking them to comic conventions. You could sell them off table for a buck. And I met a lot of great people, had a great time, enjoyed it. It was a hobby. You know, I've worked at bookstores like for money and then, you know, had this hobby that was mostly self-sustaining. It wasn't losing a lot of money anyway. But then when I turned 30, I had a baby and we moved to Canada and suddenly I couldn't go to comic conventions anymore. All my regular circuit of comic conventions was on the East Coast. And, you know, there were some out here, but it was harder to travel. It's more expensive to fly out of Vancouver. I hate saying that, but it is. Yeah. And I just, you know, had a little baby. What was I going to do? So I was like, well, okay. I always felt like I was a writer because Mrs. Chamberlain said I was. And so I guess maybe I'll try that. <laughs> And then it took me 10 years to, before, before um, Serafina was published. So, yeah. uh, and many drafts, I mean, that's a whole other story. And I obviously could, can just talk, um, but the, the world, the world has always been there is what I'm yeah. trying to say. <laughs> that's, I, that's so interesting to me. And I guess like in some element, I think that translates for so many fiction writers as well. Like the characters often have been part of a writer for so long. It just takes a while for them to end up on the page. Mm -hmm. Um, it's interesting too, that you, you brought up the, like, that you wanted to be a, a more serious. Cause I think there is like this very interesting thing with writing, like fantasy is somehow deemed mm -hmm. like 
unfortunately it seemed as like lesser than like a literary fiction even though like it's probably more people read fantasy than literary fiction uh and we can tell based on just what we consume uh online on like netflix like so much of what we want to consume is fantastical or sci-fi or like so it's so interesting to me that that kind of duality still exists between one being serious and one being not serious it is and then there's there's yet another divide between adult and juvenile yeah. fiction and you know and between prose and comics too like going that way i mean back when i was doing i was it was a fantasy comic for children and i was like wow i'm at the bottom of the <laughs> barrel here <laughs> how do i get out but um after i got out of university the first thing i wanted to do was reread all of lloyd alexander's pride and chronicles and i don't know why like i didn't know why at the time i was just like i just i need i don't know i was burned out i think and uh on on serious literature and i didn't know what i wanted to do with my life at that point and i just i sat and read them and they were so simple compared with what i remember like i remember i had I had envisioned so many elaborate things I, and, and, and you fill in on the blanks when you're a kid too, I think. And, and, you know, you don't need a lot for your imagination to just go off in a direction. And um, it really struck me how, how much he had done with, with such a slender little books. Now we got these big, you know, the big thick books. Now <laughs> they let us do this. And this is, you know, thanks to, to JK Rowling, whatever one may think of her uh, as a human, she, she, <laughs> she paved the way for thick, books being acceptable which i really appreciate yeah. um, but um yeah the 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 plate for me the place i mean this is something i talk to my students about I, I teach at ubc sometimes and something that we talk about um which is just a theory i have i'm full of theories so it's it's mostly nonsense but this is a theory that i think is interesting is that you you know when i was in school anyway we learned what we called the elements of fiction which were setting character um plot and theme and i have this theory that every writer there's a couple of those that you're you naturally gravitate towards and the other two are harder and you need all of them obviously you need all of them but which are the ones that come to you like first um and for me it's it's setting is the you know the world is always there and 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 theme which is the worst place to start because <laughs> <laughs> the worst the thing about it you'll be walking down the street and you'll be like oh this book is about harmony like you got it like you solved it but you still have the whole book to write you know <laughs> so <laughs> anyway but I, I wonder if some of us fantasy writers like gravitate to I mean if that's a common thing I don't know you know maybe that Maybe does make sense because I've heard that about like I forget I feel like I read this somewhere too where it was also like um people who are particularly good with plot feel very drawn to like mystery mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. mysteries are so plot driven and often have a very similar plot so it's like people who really get plot are very good at writing mysteries right. uh, and true crime right. so right. I could see and I remember about like world building like is all about like sci-fi and fantasy like you have to get that so that makes sense mm -hmm. to me mm -hmm. yeah different brains work in different ways you know <laughs> <laughs> good stuff yeah i wanted yeah. to talk talk a little bit about themes uh now that okay. i know that you're, you're oh, a yeah. theme driven writer uh <laughs> oh, I, no. something that 
maybe it wasn't a theme, but it was a, an idea in this book was colonization, which was mm -hmm. so interesting. Mm -hmm. And I think like mm -hmm. maybe teens understand it in a way that I never would have when I was a teenager. Um, but why was that something you wanted to address in this book and, and integrate? Well, because I think that is the, the, something that that at least for a white person such as myself <laughs> that we have to to really come to grips with what is our our place in the world and what is our place what have we done or our ancestors you know what and not just assume you know it, it seems like there are people who are told from the get-go that you were born to be the protagonist and other people are your sidekicks and and that's not how it works everybody's their own protagonist and um, and so having Tess wrestle with that now that she, in the first book, you know, began to feel like the protagonist of her own life again, how do you fit that into the world? You don't just go around saying, well, I'm the protagonist of everything. Here I am. You know? Um, and I think it was commentary too, on a lot of other fantasy novels. Cause that's, you know, the idea in sci-fi and fantasy of, of first contact and, you know, there's an awful lot of colonization narratives or even narratives of, of like royalty. Like there's a very kind of conservative streak of, of, you know, some people are royal or some people are special or some people are, are called. And, and how do you, what is a more realistic way of understanding that and navigating the world and, and really learning and really participating and growing in a, in a, in a good way how can you how can you show that in a book and so yeah that was definitely something i wanted to kind of you know a story i hate to say i hate to say that this story you know is 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 like a story i think white people need because then it's like well i it, so all the books are already written for white people rachel but <laughs> you know and so i'm like oh am i adding to that and yet it, i feel like this is you know a, a way of of a story that we're not getting, I guess, like the story that Tess tells. That story that she tells, she she's she tells it, and then she looks out and realizes that all the people are staring at her, like, "Oh, you're talking about taking our island. Oh, you're looking at us as monsters. Oh, okay, you're just here to steal our treasure. All right, yep, that that tracks, you know." And she's like, "Oops, oops, oops, oops. No, <laughs> that was I, this is just a to her just a fun story from when I was a kid. Nope, <laughs> yeah." Yeah. So. It's it's interesting because I think in the space of uh, books like yours, like it creates uh, different opportunities to deal with topics like colonization or like because in worlds that exist outside of our own world, um, there are ways to like bend the rules around like patriarchy or the gender binary. Like those things don't mm -hmm. have to apply. And so therefore mm -hmm. you can kind of comment on them in ways that we wouldn't in like a literary fiction book. Yeah. Yeah. No, that to me is, is the, the, the great interesting, like useful thing about speculative fiction of all kinds is that it's sort of a, a laboratory for thought experiments. And so you can, you can um, try things out you know you, you you make your maze and you send your people through it and see how you know you can do things that you can't do in real life <laughs> you know nobody's half dragon in real life so you just oh, oh and um and you can take 
experiences that you've had, emotion, true emotional experiences that you've had and kind of mythologize them or make them literal in the world, which is another thing that's kind of fun for me. Um, in the case of Serafina, for example, where she's half dragon, what I was getting at, because I've had a lot of people say, oh, is this a metaphor for this or this? Or what's this? It's actually a metaphor for a feeling, right? It's, it's, a, it's, it's the feeling of being a teenager and feeling like I am an absolute freak of nature. And if anybody knew, how weird I am in my deep in my soul, it would be over. My life would be over. My I, I, just social death for me. Um, and so people can then look at this half dragon person and map their own experience onto it and say, oh yeah, for me, that was, you know, the way I was marginalized in this way or that, you know, and, and, and um, the, the feeling though, the feeling is the thing that has to be true. And uh, so that, that part is fun too yeah i did want to talk a little bit about point of view because uh of course tess is the most uh, dominant voice that we hear from but we do get these glimpses of others and as you said this is something different for this book um can you talk a little bit about your process of getting there and why you're so uh in love with this right now <laughs> <laughs> sure um it actually I first wrote the entire book from Tessa's point of view and my, my editor was coming back to me with all these comments like, why is she learning this lesson again? She already knows this. Tess knows better. Why is Tess, you know, I was like, oh, oh crap. And he's, he was right. Um, and so I was like, well, but, but, but I need this in there. The, somebody has to be noticing this. Somebody has to be realizing this. And finally I realized it doesn't have to be her. It doesn't have to be, and so it was like a puzzle trying to figure out which things had to stay and who who should be seeing it, who could be seeing it, right? Because Tess could not see everything that was going on. Um, and so, but who who would? And who did it make sense? And so that that was a really interesting kind of intellectual challenge to me. <laughs> I I I don't know if you're like this, but I, my book always has to be harder then I can write like, it's too hard for me. I can't, Yeah, <laughs> I can't solve it yet. And then I, I wrestle it into, into shape. And so, but it just gave me such a new appreciation for, for, um, for, for point of view, I guess, just for, for what, how do we understand things kind of an epistemological puzzle um, and who, who understands this and who knows this and, and how can, and the difference between the knowledge the characters have and knowledge that the reader has, like the reader, that was the thing. The reader had to know all these things, mm -hmm. but which character had to give it to them um, was really fascinating. And so the current book that I work at does have some, some point of view changes too. And um, it's just fun. Like you can see the different characters, they can see each other from different angles and you get all the different facets of everyone. And it's just, it's really fun. Um, I had already started moving that direction, I think, because Serafina and Shadowscale, the first two books are all first person. And I was like, wow, I'm so tired of Serafina's brain. I'm just <laughs> not, I am not doing this again. So Tess of the Road was a, was like a close third person. And I like a close third person because it, it, it can feel like first person done yeah. well, but you can also like slyly look at the outsides of things too and, and comment and, and, and it gives the narrative a chance to kind of be 
I don't know, compassionately kind of patting the head of the protagonist sometimes when she needs it. And what you can't do as a, as a first person, because the first person, she's always pounding herself in the head because she's, you know, so, um, but yeah, the, the multiple, multiple third persons just, yes, very exciting to me right now. Yeah. <laughs> what do you do to uh, keep your creative juices flowing or when you're in those moments of stuckness, what do you do to kind of, uh, you know, take care of the other creative parts of yourself. Because we you. can't sit at our computers and, oh, and stare at the no, blinking cursor can't. all the time. <laughs> oh, no, we, we certainly can't. Um, well, some things have changed with the pandemic, and I'm not completely back to myself yet, which I'm still sad about. But I'm, I'm I have a resolution for this coming year that I'm going to start being out in the world a little bit more. Um, but certainly through my first three books, the thing that kept me going, because I, one thing is attention for me that, that, that writing used to be, I guess, originally kind of a therapy, right? And it was, it was joy and it was art. And it was like, and then, but once it becomes bound up with your, you know, how you earn a living, it's, it can't be therapy anymore. It's the source of stress. <laughs> yeah. And so what do I do? So I had to find a different art, right? A different art form that I could just do that didn't carry that like whole ego and, and income burden. Yeah. So I, I actually sang, I, I was, um, I sang for years in a, in a magical choir, um, which is just the most lovely thing in the world. And, and, uh, and it was precisely the thing that that during the pandemic was like, hey, you know, massive infection event. Yeah, you know, yeah. everybody's blowing air on each other. And you can't do it easily in a mask. I mean, it just, you know, it, it's hard, right? It, it feels like you're being squished. I mean, you, and like nobody can hear you. Um, but I'm going to try and go back. I'm going to try and go back next year. I really, I need to go back. And uh I'd been putting it off like my other friend. They're already the choir is already back together, and I'm just like, Arr. I don't know, guys. Um, but I'm gonna I'm gonna be brave and try and do it. I guess. Um, yeah. The other thing is is um, getting some exercise. Ha 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 ha. Yes. Ha ha ha. Yeah. Which before the pandemic, I was I was fencing, um, which I really love, uh, and which I drew on in this book. This book. <laughs> The most recent book there's some sword fights in it which had never interested me before i've never been interested in fight scenes like what no fight scenes so boring like i get to a fight scene in a book i'm like whatever snore roll past it having fenced suddenly i understood the mental side of it and and the kind the thought process and how you're trying to um anticipate what the other person is doing you have to have theory of mind for the other person and anticipate that and and predict and if i do this they'll do this okay but i'm going to do that and, and so i was able to write these scenes and wanted to write these scenes and loved writing these scenes with this you know the countess in this um how is she going to think this through and what what's her plan and what are they doing and she sees it coming and this you know this move this move, and that was really fun so yeah. suddenly it was fun um but fencing is actually a really fun a fun sport if anyone uh cares to it sounds fun right it, it, it's 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 I was terrible at it in some ways I'm not an <laughs> athletic person but the thinking part of it like you're thinking you know yeah. the whole like oh now what are they gonna do oh okay I'll, you know 
that part was really great. So maybe I'll get back to that too. Maybe I'll have a, you know, I've been Two doing resolutions. Other... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I can barely handle one usually. So we'll, we'll try the singing first. Yeah. But, um, you know, I, I ride my bike too. That's my other thing that I, that I yeah. do to get out in the, out in the world. Yeah. Uh, be out. And I think it's good for, it's good for me to get out of my own head. I, I, one thing with, with having a whole world in your head is it's great and tempting to spend time in there. And then you're like, Oh, what is the real world? And you really, you got to get out and look at it sometimes. <laughs> that was Rachel Hartman. Rachel's book, In the Serpent's Wake, won the 2023 Sheila A. Egoff Children's Literature Prize. If you would like to find out more about the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, visit our website at bcyukonbookprizes.com. You can also find us on social media, on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Thanks for listening to Writing the Coast.